Welcome to The Past Less Traveled. I'm Brandon Delvo, where we do history differently. History usually involves alcohol, bad or good decisions, and things that may make you feel uncomfortable. I've been a living historian for over 15 years, history major, enthusiast, and all-around history nerd. I also bring to the table over 10 years of military experience. Here we go beyond the usual dates, names, and places of the past. We go into the stories that may connect you to the bigger historical events, or just a conversation about history over a beer, or two, or three, with everything from experts, living historians, and enthusiasts. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Past Less Traveled. I am Brandon Delvo, and I know it's been a while since our last episode, which uh, you can go ahead and take a look at on any... Um, platform that you get your podcasts on. Um, once again, a thank you to Alex Stork and Casey Beck for our last episode, which was called Frontier Duty. Um, kind of going into the aspects of frontier military life in the uh, mid to late, late 1860s and then into the 1870s as well. But we're going to kind of rewind the clocks back a little bit. We're actually just kind of wrapping up a fur trade event here for the weekend. And I have with me the the legendary Carl Coster himself from Grand Portage National Monument. Um, I've seen your name come up many times in different historical publications. So Carl, thanks for coming on the Passes oh, Travel. Great, a big fan of the show. No, awesome. I love I love talking. Anytime I can talk history, I'm there. Well, good. Well, I'm glad you could you could come on. I mean, tell our listeners just. Uh, a little bit about yourself, uh, where you come from, and kind of what got you involved into kind of eventually putting on the, the goofy clothes, as we call it. Well, yeah, you know, I was, I'm a Wisconsin boy originally, and, you know, I was born in Milwaukee, actually, and, um, you know, my first, I think, you know, the whole camping thing and all that, that, that goes all the way back to scouting, you know, and I was in Boy Scouts, heavily in the Boy Scouts, and I actually, that was the first time I saw somebody dress funny. I mean, it was it was in 1977 at the National Scout Jamboree, and that year was in Pennsylvania, and I, I literally saw a guy like dressed in buckskins throwing an axe, and I was like 11, and I was like, "That's cool, I want to do that." You know, you see adults do things, and you go, "I want that job." Well, that's the job I wanted. I wanted to be the guy in the buckskin pants throwing the axe. Uh, Who doesn't want to throw it? I know, I know, you know. And the next thing I know, there's somebody. A couple of years pass, and it's like it's like 1980, 81, and there's a guy blacksmithing at some place I was at, and he says, "Well, get back here, grab a hammer." So I was learning a little blacksmithing from the guy. Well, next thing I know, someone says, "Hey, young guy, you want a blacksmith for this reconstructed logging camp in northern Wisconsin?" Sure, I didn't know any. Next thing I know, I'm wearing funny clothes, and there I am. And it was amazing because, you know, that's 39 years ago. And if someone would have told me, you know, that, you know, you know, 39 years later, Carl, in 2021, you're still going to be dressing funny doing old stuff, I'd say you're nuts. <laughs> but, you know, it was, it was a good growth. You know, I worked at tons of different little historical sites, and I, I made a living trying to be a trader for a while among, like, the rendezvous circuit. And then I think what really bit me was education. I mean, educating the public. Absolutely. So the, the last 20, the last 20 some years I've been with the park service and it's worked well for me uh, in a lot of ways, you know, both at Grand Portage National Monument and at Fort Union. So I, I always tell people um, the skills I've learned in doing this job 
um, whether it's making snowshoes or toboggans or building birch bark canoes, which I did for years, or making buckets or barrels as a cooper, you know, it's to me a fur trade fort or any kind of fur trade activity to me, because that's my interest is fur trade. To me, going into those places every day is like going into a sandbox and playing. Oh, I, I think of these places as my, as my sandbox, you know? Yeah. So With all sorts of toy trucks being everything from axes to tin oh, plates to oh, yeah. clothing to, well, I mean, we just did yeah. an inventory of the... Yeah, of the the trade the trade room, which oh, I haven't yeah. done in a while, and I mean that's just fascinating too. Trying to remember the yeah. nomenclatures of things and what things would have been called in inventories and such. I think most reenactors, whether it's like a Civil War reenactor or fur trade or it's a military reenactor, I think they all wish someday they had like a a room for themselves or a cabin behind their house that they could decorate just for their time frame they love the best, where they can go in there and sneak away from the family and have a pipe and a drink and just soak in that atmosphere. And that's that's what I got in a fort by living in a fort, you know, every day for eight hours. It's like and you you know you don't have to pay for it. <laughs> well, yeah. <And> you. <laughs> How crazy is that? Well and I mean it, you you talked about just educating the public which is which is so important so i mean things picked up today which is oh. crazy for a sunday um because usually you don't get anybody till after like yeah. lunch time with, with with just church and and whatnot but it is you know around labor day weekend and and such but i mean just the amount of people and i think just watching your delivery with the public talking about the fur trade and yeah. and, and putting it in terms of you know it economics and business hasn't really changed right i mean you've done grand portage so you're doing maybe late 1700s yeah fort union more 1830s up to 1850 but even for 2021 economics and trade the basic concepts really have not changed and those topics can be really boring if you tell somebody we're going to sit down and talk economics they got that glazed over. Oh no! Please, not that. Not another lecture you know, from school. <laughs> but you got you. You find your ways of making it like wickedly cool. Yep. You know, and I think your delivery with talking just so like in the concept of the fur trade, it, it's these posts are more like a Walmart, Walmart. but it's a United Nations as well. And yeah. I think that's a great analogy of putting it. Of you're putting all these different tribes, be it Cree, Assiniboine, Arikara. Oh, yeah. Sue, I mean, and you, you jumble them up, well, sometimes things happen. You know, it's it's using, too, what's what's fresh and what's what's lately people are relating to or what's topically fresh, you know? I mean, talking about uh, the Assiniboine telling the American Fur Company to build at, to build here at Fort Union. You know, they wanted this post here. Well, they all hear about this colonization lately of people coming in and taking native lands and pushing and this that's this is different this, yep. they, they wanted this trading post here or you talk about uh, uh, rich guys like Mackenzie um, having African-American servants and other fur companies okay sorry that something timed out on our phone and this is what happens when you don't do anything in a while so we're, we're talking about trade with the Indians yeah. and and the colonization aspect so yeah. I'm, I'm sorry about that Carl so you get the, you get the colonization thing there that you can talk with but also when you're talking fur trade and you're talking about these native people coming in, these different tribes, and they're, they're seeing the Scottish owner of a fur company, and there's a black servant who's, who's there, and there's French-Canadian voyageurs who are there, 
and there are these Mexican vaqueros that the company is hiring to take care of horses. And, you know, and this is all happening in the aspect of maybe 75 people in a fur post in the 1830s or so. And you look at that and you're going, wait a minute, I just seen black people, brown people, white people. I've heard eight different languages. You know, you, you don't find that in, in rural America hardly ever. Oh, no. That many diverse people and that many colors and languages. And, you know, this whole thing about diversity everyone talks about these days. You, you throw that in there, you know. You can really make the whole fur trade relate to these people. Yep. You know, more so than just it's a Walmart in the wilderness, which is, like we said, it's my favorite, you know. But, but I mean, it it works, and then it sets a groundwork for people. And, I mean, you talk about the colonization thing, and I know I've mentioned it on other episodes, is just people come in with an expectation or a thought of from, you know, things they've seen, Hollywood. You see Four Walls and, and a Bastion, yeah. you think of, like, Fort Apache. You think of John Wayne. And, and for, for us to kind of nip those things in the bud of telling people, I mean, yeah, soldiers were here, but it was very... It was a sliver in the bigger oh, timber yeah, yeah. Of, of what of what transpired here at Fort Union. Yeah. It's like discussing the word fort with people, which 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 works nice here because you got Fort Buford just two miles down the road. You know, when you could tell people military post Fort Buford fortified against an attack. Fort Union fortified against theft. You know, I yep. you know, I always tell people at Portage when I worked there for twenty some years and all that. You know, in any fur post that I work at, and I worked at a lot of different fur posts over the years, um, you know, you tell these people, you know, these these walls around these fur posts, these are like the, the like the, the chain link fence around the lumber yard at your local hardware store. You know, that chain link fence isn't keeping anyone out from attacking Menards in 2021. You know, what it's doing is keeping people out of the woodlot when they're not open for business. Yep. It does it's not serving a defensive purpose per se. It's anti theft. Yep. And that's what that's what the you know, that's what we are here, you know. We're we're that store. And what was it, um, just as a fun fact, I was it eighteen thirty five or eighteen thirty seven, the West Wall actually blew down. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so yeah. it, it, it also tells you, I mean, that the original construction was probably fairly more crude than what yeah. we're seeing today with i mean the bigger timbers and i even remember vividly as a child my grandpa yeah. taking me out here on the highway and when oh. they were starting the reconstruction of of yeah. the fort and and just the the amount of things that came off the railhead for it i mean obviously there's there's some defensive purpose for it there's you know it's always some there but then again if if we're the only thing around for a thousand miles here at fort union and let's say it's a july day or let's say an august september day and there's 80 people working here when you read the numbers of 1,600 natives coming to trade at one time, if, if there's 1,600 people outside the walls and there's 70 inside the walls, I, I really don't care how tall the walls are. If they really want to do something, they'll do it. Yep. <laughs> yeah. A, I mean, and, and, I mean, you bring, you bring up, too, that, I mean, this was asked to be built here by, by the Assiniboines. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's even that going back to kind of that United Nations thing, there's there's even that politics in play of, I mean, they naturally have oh, the, the back of, of, of the traders that are that are here and the business that will transpire. And, I mean, that that says a lot too. But then we even get into traders intermarrying oh, yeah. with, with the tribes to secure further trading relationships. So, I mean, 
the fact that this could go on as peaceably as it did was it, it was it was a mutual beneficial Hi, hiring relationship. native women and putting them in and putting them in situations of being in charge of regular workers or engagés you know where do you, where do you see that anywhere else even in the 1930s with a guy like Astor running the American Fur Company this millionaire hiring a native woman and putting her in charge of a bunch of guys yeah it's it's crazy to think that was going on here and it was and it doesn't get mentioned no. i mean as much i know there was a a lady out in the trade room that was talking about some of the the roles that women would have played and it's not so much just a woman you know and a member of any tribe that's out just scraping hides i mean yeah. we we there's well documented pictures of of some indian women that had intermarried with like yeah. you know mr denning or kenneth mckenzie and they're wearing period correct or women's clothing even you know we, we always try to hit and i know you do too we're, when we're doing fur trade events you're always trying to hit that global aspect too you know if you're telling people that these trade goods are coming in from germany and france and italy and spain and south america and africa and asia and these people's eyes just you know when you start giving them that global thing you know like we were talking last night about these furs coming from port union and going to new york and going to Leipzig and going to london and being you know you, you, when you can tell these global stories and i i try to do that a lot too when when you can when you get the gist or you feel you realize that someone's coming in and they're they're from one of those countries you know well you're from holland let me tell you about the the, the jaw harps that the company was bringing in from there. Oh, you're from Venice or Murano. Let me tell you about some beads that were coming from there. I love doing that. Well, we, we had a couple from Germany Yeah. that I ended up talking to when you were talking to a group of people. Oh, they yeah. kind of poked their head in yeah. the trade room. Yeah. And like Aster. What went from on Germany? <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, and, and that helps a lot too. So for those that don't know, this was Living History Weekend. I know we kind of hinted at it. And it usually Living History Weekend is... A scenario or a segment of historical events that we kind of encapsulate within within an evening of a candlelight tour and you go you yeah. know the public goes to different stations around the fort and this year was something that was totally different this was something that Carl you yourself actually thought of and, yeah. and, and read about and got the the brainchild for this and, and go ahead and describe it because we were just talking about the, the oh, bigger yeah. trade system and I think that really factors into what we pulled off successfully last night yeah you know I was, I was i was reading one of the many biographies on on astor who owned the american fur company and um, i was reading axel madsen's book actually on 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 astor and uh there was some work done in that book where they where they were following how he was making his money in the fur trade where he was buying they would say he bought a, a keg of powder a 10 pound keg for two dollars and at that time, twenty cents was a great price a pound for powder. So he, so he bought this powder, and basically we were able to follow that whole powder keg, you know, uh, through that book, uh, is how Madsen wrote it up. So we used that basically that one paragraph from that book. So we followed that keg. We had we had um, asked her buy the keg. The keg arrive at Union. Uh, the keg be, being sold. Um, it was sold for actually ten beaver hides. 10 beaver hides that year brought $140. So then we followed that $140 back to Astor and um, after the sale of the, of the beaver in London that year. Um, and then it came out that you saw how much Astor had to spend for transportation. 
how much he had to spend for shipping, how much he had to pay his partners, and how he came out at the end uh, with a $56 profit. And that's just, folks, that's off of just one keg, keg. of gunpowder. So now we, you know, of course, use simple math, multiply that by whatever. Yeah, 400 kegs of powder, not <laughs> counting the, the barrels of beads, the, the firearms, the knives, the axes, the kettles. The, this is just one keg. I mean, that, that there just is, is like I said, so, it's a sliver on yeah. a bigger portion of just the, the lucrative business that, yeah. that was done up here throughout you know, almost that, half a century. Yeah, but the public got to follow that vignette. They saw Mrs. Astor talk about her husband. They saw that keg being purchased at, the, by, at DuPont by the makers of it. They saw that keg arrive on the steamboat coming up from the, 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 the Missouri. You know, they, they saw it being traded. I mean, they saw, they watched this whole thing, you know, and it was just great. Yeah. And I mean, even then just the breakdown, I mean, I'm in a scene where yeah. I'm, I'm with an engage and I'm, I'm portraying a clerk and the clerk is asking, you know, where does this go beyond just St. Louis? Cause I mean, everybody, I wow. think if, if you had any involvement historically in the fur trade, I mean, everybody knew St. Louis, Yeah, but I mean, a lot of these people might not have ever been to the Deep South, you know, and just looked at the bigger trading network. You could, it could go down the Mississippi to New Orleans. It can go over across the Ohio and eventually make its way, you know, through the lock systems. But from there, I mean, then it goes over to London, Germany, and we talk about just the, the hats. But then you're starting to see a transition in this where beaver aren't going to be cornering the market. The talk is buffalo. Yeah. And... I mean, Buffalo eventually does yeah. take off. That becomes the new, that becomes all the rage, yeah. essentially. I mean, for those, for those, you know, we had like 100 people show up to watch these vignettes. And I, you know, I just am amazed that, you know, we're sitting here in, in as rural as it gets, North Dakota, Montana here, you know, and you got to make an effort to get to Fort Union. It's not like you're driving by just accidentally. You know, oh, there it is. And, you know, these people are popping in here to see these, this little, skit we're putting on and i think they're walking away with this i thought we were like in the middle of nowhere Montana. and here's these guys talking italy and spain and Leipzig and germ you know i think getting that global thing across to people that this is not just a rural part this was this was the world right here at this time I, yeah people just love that you know when you you know people think that just because this place might have been the end of civilization for a long time, that that was it. It was the edge of the frontier. But, I mean, I think we, we take for granted with cars and just airplanes and other conveyances today that, I mean, our ancestors weren't stupid, number one. And number two, they were connected into a system. I mean, even if it was over land and the dangers that, yeah. that faced. But then once steamboats came up here, I oh, mean. You know, and Astor was never here, but... You know, you could do, you could have done a skit on any of the guys that were here, Denig or Culbertson, and I don't think I think you needed that Astor name because it was the one thing. You know, people didn't come in here going, "I'm really dumb about everything." Everyone knows John Jacob Astor. Most people have heard that name. Absolutely. So I think when they heard that, it must have intrigued them somewhat. Sure, I know about him. Sure, I heard of the guy, but what do I really know about him? I think it kind of, you know, there was something in that whole. Follow that keg of John Jacob Astor. Learn how he became a millionaire. I mean, that... Well, and who doesn't like the... I don't like... Well, I'm just going to say it like... Who doesn't like the, the get-rich-quick story? Yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you put money and then you put just some of the in, 
the, the intrigue of the adventure that goes into it. I mean, the, the, the trapper that's going in and just what the challenges he faced just to get his hides and bring them back. But then he's, he's going to go back out. I mean, that's, that's what he does to get that. So, I mean, the powder is put to use through, I mean, the means of a rifle for him. And then for, for everybody else, even for me, it might be, you know, numbers on a page, the engagés actually pressing the hides. Like everybody has a little piece of the pie yeah, find and that they're funny part of the that, network. Find that funny that the, the term get rich quick and living history together almost collided there because it's like totally the oxymoron. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. There's yeah. so many times where I'm like, am I going to eat ramen noodles or yeah. SpaghettiOs or do I get this pair of trousers? No, I don't. Oh. <laughs> oh, you know? You know, that's, you know, and I've been, you know, I, I've tried everything in reenacting. Like I said, I, I traveled the circuit doing like 32 to 36 living history events a year in 12 different states um, as a as a vendor at living history uh, events and i thought that was living history for a while it, it turned out it, it really wasn't i was i was selling fry bread you that's know. just work it was just work but you know i'll never regret it because what we did was we did it at living history festivals and even though i was just slinging fry bread or selling you know donuts um, those events we did were at like fort scott fort jackson fort toulouse fort it got me into those I got to see all those historic places. Oh, sure. That I never would have had a chance to see. So I don't, I don't regret that. You know, and we, you know, we all start somewhere. And it, I think all each one of those historic sites, you know, I grew from. You know, I, I think you know that constant growth in living history is you need things to push you. And I think, I think seeing those other sites, you know, uh, changed my view on how I should teach living history and and. I think it made me want to teach living history more. I think that's why I realized the Park Service was a better avenue for me. Sure. So, I mean, we, we talk about, you know, you, you've seen the, the big wide lens of, I mean, all those forts have their own unique history and, yeah. their, and their place in it. I mean, be it East Coast, West Coast, along the Mississippi. I mean, where do you see... I mean, even just from being out here for a season and, and yeah. seeing the amount of kids and everything that's connected with, with the muzzleloader club. I mean, where where do you see living history in like the next 20 or 30 years? I mean, you've seen it progress. Oh, you know. I In your time. It's amazing what I've seen in living history, you know. And, and being in every aspect, you know. And, and just being a, a weekend reenactor, a full-time reenactor, a professional reenactor, you know, working for the park. You know, I've seen so much. And... You know, what I see here at Fort Union, you know, is, uh, uh, boy, that, that having um, a friends group, having a local reenacting group, how powerful that is, you know. Because there's, trust me, there are a lot of sites that don't have that. They don't have a friends group. They don't have a local reenacting club. And I see how much that club is doing here, and I'm just, I'm just totally amazed. Um, I also give credit to the Park Service, I mean, for, for doing these things and, and keeping these things going. Um, where's it going? There's always people saying, oh, the hobby is dying, you know? And yeah. I don't, I don't, no, I don't buy that. I don't buy it. There's less events. That's not a problem, less events. You know what? If you had less events, there's no problem with that. If they are better events. You look at the really, really good events, the ones that you go, oh, we got to go there every year. we got to do this for it every year. This rendezvous here is the best. That means that's because they're good ones. 
and and I, I totally agree with you on that. I yeah. mean, I'm 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 one that will look at a quality event. I'd rather do you know four or five good quality events a year than doing like twenty around it that are just in in Bob's backyard. Yeah, I I totally agree with you on yeah. that. And and I I came into it. I mean, for for those that don't know, on the military side first yeah. and. I still am a stickler for that. I look at guidelines. I look good at, events breed good reenactors. Absolutely, and that's what, that's why they're good events. That that's I think that's a perfect way of saying it. I mean, yeah. it it and, and at the same time, it goes even to a philosophy that I know Leif and I have talked about. That you have, I mean, nothing against the general public. The general public's obviously coming out here to learn something. Yeah, and so they're already meeting us halfway, and it goes into this philosophy of, I mean, we could dress hokey and 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 you know the way they might have done it 30 years ago and yeah. they just didn't know any better. But we don't do that. And, and we don't do that because if we do it right, you know, word of mouth is powerful. Word of mouth is especially powerful in the upper Midwest. Oh, yeah. People are going to go home and say, you know, or they might see something on TV or a placard on the highway, a sign, and go, I've been there and I remember so-and-so. I mean, you just had a kid yeah. come out here yesterday and say, yeah. like, Mr. Carl, was, he came oh, in, yeah. what, a school group or yeah, something? Yeah, like, a school group. That yeah. just the impression that you made even on a child, yeah. and just imagine the impression we make on yeah. adults that want to come out here to learn. I mean, yeah. that that's powerful too. Yeah, you know that's one of my uh, I, I tell some of the new seasonal staff that's my that's one of my big secret tricks I've been doing in living history for a while the the school group kid thing, and how that works is that there's a certain time of the year where you get nothing but school groups and school groups three a day four a day just tons of these kids right. So I introduced myself to him. Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm Ranger Carl. You know, I play the jaw harp and the concertina and do my song and dance and, and then hit him with the, this place is a Walmart in the wilderness and give him the real juice of the story. And then when they leave me at the end of the day, you know, uh, the kids, I always say, now you guys got to come back with mom and dad in, during the summer when you're off of school because you can show them this place and you could be the tour guide. And you can say they got to come back because like, you have a friend here, Ranger Carl, you know. So then all summer when school's out, these kids are showing up with mom and dad. And they go, I hear them going, there he, there he is, mom. That's Ranger Carl. That's Ranger Carl. And they all start screaming, Ranger Carl, Ranger Carl. <laughs> and I walk up to these kids and I just go, uh, let me see, don't, don't tell me. You were here with a school group, weren't you? Yes, see, he remembers me. They, they, they all think it's the coolest thing. You know? Of course. And that's, you know, it makes you feel so good. You know, it's just... Well, you're making yeah. a connection and, and that could possibly yeah. be the next reenactor down the line. Yeah. Or, I mean, yeah. the people here made an impression on me at an early age and that's oh, yeah. why I'm now yeah. out here wearing the, and the parents, goofy clothes like everyone else. It's funny I mean, the parents figure it out. You know, they give you the old wink like you say it to all the kids. Don't you know <laughs> That's so but, Santa Claus of you. Yeah, it is, you know. But you know, it's and I, I, you know, I don't do it to make the kid. I do it to make the kid happy. But it makes me happy. It's you know, it's part of the fun. Absolutely, it, it's all fun. I mean, all my fun is reenacting based. I mean, you know, my wife was a reenactor. Her grand, her grandparents or her parents were reenactors. Her, her, her mom and dad were traders, so she grew up doing it since she was like. A little kid. Well, she did the circuit then. Yeah. They were traders. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You know, and then I meet her, you know, and she grew up telling her parents, she goes, the last thing I ever want to do is marry one of these reenacting dudes, you know? So. <laughs> My, know, how the world works, oh, right? Yeah. And now I got two kids <laughs> and, and they've worked at a living history site. You know, my, my girls are like, you know, 
uh, both uh, in school still. But so I used to I used to threaten my daughters that way. I used to say, uh, "You better do good in school." I go, "If you don't do good in school, it's the family curse." And they'd look at me, and I said. I dress funny for a living and work at old places. Your mom dressed funny, work at old places. Your grandma and grandpa dressed funny, work at old places. If you don't do good in school, you're going to end up dressing funny, working at old places. So I was, <laughs> it's, it's the family biz. <laughs> and are you are your two girls still in high school? Or are they out of high school? One's a or? senior in high school. Yeah. Okay, so, so yeah, I got one who's like 17 and one who's like eight. Yeah. So are we? Is she looking at? college or wanting to like get a history degree or you know she likes writing a lot okay That's her passion you know um she you know she was she was working at uh at grand portage and uh of course she didn't want me anywhere near her you know when she was interpreting to the public you know obviously very nervous because daddy's yeah. right there and you know daddy's there and, and then everyone's like you know oh you're 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 carl's daughter you know, and she's like, oh, you know, it was, it was hard for her, I think. Yeah. But, you know, I'd sneak, like, sneak by the building, you know, crawl on my belly and go under the window and listen to her interpret, and she was darn good. She was really good. She's skilled at it. Um, I don't think it's her calling. I don't think she'll be doing it, you know. Um, my, my wife has moved into the offices of living of, for the Park Service instead of on-site interpreter. Okay. But I think she enjoyed the on-site stuff, but, um, but, um, I think, you know, the seven-year-old just wants to be whatever daddy is, so. Oh, sure. So, of course, she she thinks she'll want to be a reenactor for the rest of her life, probably, but. And my three-year-old is the same. I mean, we found out I was up here for this. So, oh, yeah? Because he just likes, he just likes my low-crowned oh, wool hat and, yeah. and running around and, and whatnot. But but that's, that's the other thing, too, like, even just getting back to the kids is the amount of kids that are running around out here and i mean that that's also historically accurate oh, i mean the oh, yeah. the intermarrying with tribes the, the the children and i mean the fact that larpenter did a census in the dwelling range and there was families cohabitating together you know, with that, multiple sets of children that goes back to what's the future of reenacting you know some of these good events that i do the ones that i really crave i noticed that there's young there's old there's kids there's women there's you know, and some of the dying events that I've gone to and go, yeah, I'll go check it out. And it's just the last waning years. It's a, it's a bunch of old, old guys sitting there camping out in the back. Yep. Yeah. You know? When yep. you see when you see a healthy demographic at a rendezvous, that's a healthy rendezvous. You know. Yeah. When you see those young ones that are going to grow up to take over the event, and you know, a good living history event needs to have that nice demographic. You just can't have all old guys. Yep. And I think it also comes down to living history groups being open and being accepting of new people. Yeah. And because, I mean, the, the, this is in no way against the, the local muzzleloading club or anything. When I started, I was the young guy. Yeah. And to see where it's gone now in 10 plus years, I mean, it's it's a success story in itself. And I'm, I'm just so proud to just even be just a simple member now that i don't i don't live in the local area but i still pay my dues and whatnot and just to see it grow and to see it become successful and see kids and and see them have a fun time out here and hope that maybe they want to take the next step at some point or continue coming out i mean that doesn't just a give us hope b it's it's just it's it's a part of that that you know it adds the 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 enjoyment to the public yeah. they they see this as you know oh this is family friendly and ever since i've had kids i mean i've been a 
vocal advocate for yeah. this is something you can bring the family out at it's funny i always go you know i've always been told by people you know you need to do something other than this reenacting living history stuff you got to find another outlet you'll just you know I'll, I'll do some woodworking well that leads into building birch bark canoes and buckets and barrels <laughs> so it, you know you're in this row to do something different and it just kind of got into a rut and went back to you know you know you need to do something that's not fur trade related okay okay i'll learn an instrument you know i'll learn the concertina well then the only songs i play are like pre-1850 you know <laughs> it's the rumble strips on the highway man it just I can't get out of it they I hit here and then like no it. i need to go back over here yeah i can't you know and you know and you know you know they say what makes the reenactor and you know what makes successful people not that i'm successful but um you know it is the family too because you know you want to have good reenacting gear and stuff like that and i that's the thing i've always been blessed uh, that my family's always been supportive of it you know i keep waiting every day for them to tell me okay you're 58 time to get a real job <laughs> <laughs> you know and they're like well you better buy that beaver felt hat because you talk to a lot of people and you better have the real thing or you need to make hand make a straw hat top yeah, hat yeah <laughs> Because yeah. you've done that yourself, too. Oh, that was another business I was in for a while. Couldn't find historically correct uh, hats, so I uh, learned to braid and weave hats and st hand stitch them so the thread's hidden and make them just the right way exactly like the old ones. And Yeah, yeah. It's it's a labor of love, but it's it's something that you know is done right. I, done si I did 60-some hats, and then I said, I think I'm done. <laughs> As your fingers were probably just screaming. My eyes, I you couldn't see anymore. Oh. Because, you know, because the, the original hats were actually, the needle was placed under the straw, and we kind of held it in place by going around the straw. And modern hats on machines are all just perforated. They go right, yeah. through, the, right through the straw. And that, that weakened the hat. Real hats were never perforated. So. See, I, I didn't know that. Yeah. I mean, and, and it's, yeah. it's just those... It's that attention to detail. It's those little things. Um, and I've mentioned it too. Of just somebody might not know if yeah, and there's, you know, the, the pattern of your pants or oh, the, yeah. the the textiles that there's, they were. There's always new I things mean. that you you know I you know the, it's not getting boring because there's always new things. You know, there's always something new in the fur trade I got to try or something new in history I got to try. You know, that's that's why I always tell people I go, no, you don't want to buy a birch bark canoe from me or a, or a, or a, or a bucket from me that I'm coopering or canoe building. I go, you go to a real birch bark canoe builder if you want a canoe. You go to a real cooper if you want a bucket. I said, because because I am the straw hat guy, cooper guy, bucket guy, barrel guy, canoe guy, I'm the jack of all trades, master of none. My canoes float, my buckets hold water. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's your period correct disclaimer. Yeah. yeah. Like, right... I just started a new skill just weeks ago, or not weeks ago, about a year ago. Um, a trade that I never saw done at any living history event. And I'm trying to learn how to do it because I don't know anyone who's ever done it. And that's mending China. I kept on coming across these guys listed as China menders as their profession. And, uh, found some images of it. And you've all seen them in museums when you see plates, porcelain plates, and they have a staple. Yeah. They have a staple on them. Yep. So if, you, if your plate cracked back in the day, you'd put a staple in it. But you'd take it to a guy who'd do that, a china mender. So he would drill holes on each side of the crack and pound in a metal staple. Now the whole thing to me just sounded insane. 
Well, yeah. First, you're drilling into porcelain. Then you're driving in with a hammer a metal staple. No, you don't do that. (laughs) But that's what what it is. I'm still trying to wrap my brain around that. Yeah. I mean, that goes back to that labor of love thing and... So I'm, buy, I'm buying the little, you know, you want a silver staple, a brass staple, or whatever. You know, I'm making the little staple, I'm hammering, I'm buying the specialized jewelry tools, and, and I'm drilling into porcelain using a diamond, uh, a cone with a piece of diamond that I bought, sticking out of the bottom of it, you know, and it's a pump drill, you know. And it was funny because the first one I tried doing, I actually put the staple on and pounded it in place, and it looked great. I did it. The next 30 I did all broke. Pounding the staple, it just shatters into a thousand pieces. So I'm still trying to perfect it. But So how do you how do you break one? That, that's the major question. I mean, you obviously got to find one that's broken or something just to even. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do it, but you don't want to shatter it in a million pieces. I mean, right. you don't want a million right. staples. Yeah. So. I, I have enough, you know, historic. And especially, you know, in reenacting, because, we, you know, we're buying, like, custom ceramic pieces. And we're, you know, there's people that make you know, beautiful reproduction porcelain, ceramic, well, yeah. clay, you know. And what do we do when it cracks? We, we get some modern glue and glue it back together. So my thought was, if I can learn the skill, how cool would it be that, that that reproduction tobacco jar that you had your friend the potter make for you, when it does break, how about putting a staple on it, having a period repair on it? Yeah. Like it would have been. That was the whole gist of me learning to do this, which I'm still trying to learn, and it's frustrating me, but... It's like you said. I mean, you can go a million directions on on things. I mean, I was talking with another gentleman out here, another you know participant, and we got on the topic of rat traps. <laughs> yeah. I mean, just okay. We think of a mouse trap today, yeah. but I mean, were they basically using just a smaller version of a beaver trap then? It's like you know, yeah. and I just make a mention of it because we're in the trade room, and there's obviously you know the mice have been in there, and we got, we're going to clean it out, and you know. As I mentioned, like Chardon's journal, every month of how many rats he's trapped. Yeah. I'm just like, but you don't know what kind of traps he is. And sure enough, that individual goes, you know, come to think of it, I wanted to do more on that and read on that and whatnot. And it's just the wormholes you can go down are literally endless. If it's not mending China, it can be rat traps, it can be hats, it can be like birch bark canoes, like you said. I'm I mean, talking to somebody, I think, two days ago in the, in the trade house at Union, and I was telling him about how certain fur traders and fur posts brought in cats you know to keep the mice at bay from chewing on the blankets and all that and they actually yep. shipped in cats and that you know and I, I pride myself in doing a lot of research and reading and not getting stumped on people you know but it happens and i love it when you do get stumped because it just makes you want to go home and grab that book and find that answer oh yeah so it doesn't happen again yeah you know and then she said oh cats interesting so what 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 did the cages look like they were in? Just blank. I. What does a cat cage look like that cats were shipped into the fur post with? I. That's a totally valid question. Yeah. I said, you know what? I don't know, but I'm going to find out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how, but I'm going to try to find out. I mean, well, I mean, even what, <laughs> what Lewis and Clark might have sent animals back with. Yeah. yeah. Just rudimentary yeah. cages. I mean, who knows? I, I have no idea how. But but then that's a whole wormhole of yeah. looking at freight and shipping crates yeah. and everything else but that you might have been done. You know, the, you know, is that how other people in real jobs act too? You know, 
<laughs> you know, when they, no. hear, when they hear a question no. like that, you know? Yeah. I don't think so. What causes that oil pan to, to warp like that? I don't know. I'll get on that as soon as I get home and research it. <laughs> Do mechanics talk that way? Or I don't know. But for us, then we just end up like looking at like what the oil pan was on a Model T. Yeah. And we get yeah. in the whole thing with oh, yeah. old car bodies and everything else. Uh, I mean, it's the, I, I'm, I'm going to officially call it the rumble strip theory. Yeah, yeah. Because when, when, when you try to divert. I love that. Get off the road. No, boop, it gets you right back on course oh, of like, so stick with what you know. And I'm a firm yeah. believer in that. Stick with what you know. Yeah. Stick with what you enjoy. My wife has to deal with it. Your oh, wife yeah. has to deal with oh, it. Yeah. Just about anybody I've talked to on here has had a significant other or a spouse yeah. that has to put up with yeah. put up with this. But I've, I, I've always told them, you know, what a better hobby to have. I'm not out at a oh, racetrack all yeah. the time. I'm not out sports betting. I'm not out doing other mm-hmm. things. Like, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm A doing probably one of the best beyond like maybe like the united way or you know making sack lunches or whatever i mean doing that type of volunteer work like this is literally volunteer work for the general public itself and that's that's always been my spousal sales pitch when it's like well really you need those pants well but i need those pants to to do this this and this oh yeah and well sometimes that either adds consternation or it doesn't but i mean it, it's still is it's it's such a valuable thing to, to continue to educate the public because it, it, like we said hollywood has done its thing and we try to right the ship and, you know you got the joy in reenacting of just sitting by a fire with like one or two friends absolutely and it's the best thing in the world i agree then once in a while you get that little taste of ooh this television station wants to do something or this movie wants to consult with you and you're like ooh that's a big fun thing and there's all these different weirds you know oh because you're the fur trade guy at the local park um, the, your, your daughter's teacher wants you to come talk to the class you know yeah. those are all just great things yeah you know oh I get to do some Hollywood thing oh I get to do talk to my kids school and oh what fun just sitting with one guy by a fire and talking they're, they're all even in my books they're yep. all even joys yep you know you're absolutely right yeah I think if there was just one you know my only goal is to only do television work or something <laughs> you know yeah I, I like what living history gives you all these different options there's definitely opportunities that people don't see or maybe know enough about just I mean even the general public coming in I mean yeah. you know a lot of them assume we're just we work for the park service oh, yeah. but then they're really astonished when a lot of them are just we're here on our own free will we're here because we enjoy doing it we enjoy the camaraderie of everybody so you're absolutely right with that i mean and really so yeah <laughs> but i mean it boils down to the fire at the end of the night and yeah whatnot and sorry folks we've had some technical difficulties on here it's like i said it's been a month and my I, phone's acting weird and i we're, can be difficult <laughs> And we're, and we're just trying to make this work, and I don't know if it's the Wi-Fi or whatever. I mean, we had to find a fairly quiet place because, I mean, the public's been out all day and whatnot. But, Carl, really thanks for coming on The Past Less Travel. Thanks for telling your story. Yeah, and I'm serious. I, I'm a big fan of the, of the podcast there. You know? it's, well, thanks. It's awesome. It's, you know, and, and getting to know you, especially this year. I mean, we've had just, just a blast of fun every time. Oh, yeah. No, it, yeah. It, it's been it's been amazing. And, and like I said, I mean, your reputation precedes you. I've seen your name in many different things. And finally, you know, it's like history, yeah. starstruck moment yeah. in a way of like, 
you know, like, I mean, this guy knows well, his shit. There's, there's all these people <laughs> that impress, you know, and, you know, like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm going to leave with these two things that I, I always loved in living history. There's a couple models you live by sometimes, and there's one that, uh, uh, they are both from the same guy, uh, you know, a guy that I was starstruck by, um, who was a reenactor, and he told me, he said, um, he once wrote, he said, uh, my eyes can read the past, but my other senses are severely neglected. Saying that, you can read all the history books you want, but unless you smell the campfire and cut yourself with the axe making the barrel and your physical stuff, you got the living history is important. Yep. Yeah. So that, so that the whole thing of yeah, yeah, my eyes can read the past, but the rest of my senses are severely neglected. Always love that. I think that's I think that's perfect, and I think that's yeah. a perfect way to to wrap up our our conversation today. Once yeah. again, Carl, thanks for coming on. Nice. Thanks for telling your story and why living history is important. And and folks, I mean, you you can go back and listen to a lot of our other episodes and and everything else. And really, I mean, I can't hit it home hard enough. Just the the stories that everybody bring to the table and why that this is important. So. Well, Carl, I've said it a million times. Thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Go visit your local fur post. If, I haven't, if I'm not there, I'll eventually get there to work. <laughs> <laughs> just go to any random fur post, folks, and just ask for Carl. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Carl. Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Past Less Traveled. We love our listeners, so if you'd like to hear more episodes, feel free to subscribe or follow The Past Less Traveled on whatever platform you enjoy your podcasts on. Also, like us on Facebook at Past Less Traveled with two L's or Instagram at Past Less Traveled. And yes, we are on Twitter at Past Less Traveled, the number one. If you have someone or something in mind that we should talk about for an episode, feel free to send us an email at pastlesstraveled at gmail.com. Thank you, and we look forward to giving you more great history content in the future.